Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome back everyone to our podcast. And today we'll talk with Professor Thomas Unger, Emeritus Professor of Pharmacology and Experimental Medicine at Karim Maastricht University in the Netherlands, where he was also its scientific director. Thomas was also the director of the Institute of Pharmacology and founding director of the Center for Cardiovascular Research at Charité Institution in Berlin. And at the International Society of Hypertension, Thomas has chaired the ISH Guidelines Committee and chair, shared the organizing committee for the ISH Scientific Meeting in Beijing 2018, and currently is a member of the ISH Council and chair of the Corporate Liaison Committee. But most important to us today, Thomas was a key figure in the creation of an innovative training network supported by the European Commission called Mindfit. This is an European joint doctorate program combining scientific research with in-depth professional and transferable skill training. So it's a very unique program. So with no further ado, I would like to say welcome to you, Thomas, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, welcome, Guto. I'm quite glad to be here and talk to you about many questions concerning mentoring and also career aspects of men and women in hypertension. And just to get us started, Thomas, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Like, how did you get involved in research and specifically in hypertension, cardiovascular diseases? Yeah, that's a funny story, basically. Um, you know, as a medical student, I was uh, the last uh, semesters, as we call it. So the last one and a half years, I was in Heidelberg, Germany. And before that, I actually spent a year in Leeds in Yorkshire at the medical school. And uh, so I came back to Germany and um, as it was at the time, um, if you want to be a good doctor, you have to write a thesis, a doctoral thesis for the MD. And uh, you can do that either experimentally or theoretically, whatever, but I decided to do experiments. And so I went to a lab in immunology and tried to isolate a certain antigen on uh, certain cells, on the red blood cells actually. And that means that you have to stand in the lab for a long time, waiting for the centrifuge to stop. And all of, all of those of you who have worked with centrifuges, you know what that means. It's very time consuming and boring. So there was a janitor in this hospital and uh, he was a tennis player. I also used to play tennis. And so we discussed all these kinds of things. And suddenly he said, you know, in Canada, in Montreal, there is an opening for a fellowship and uh, why don't you apply for that uh, uh, one of the professors told me that i should you know spread the news that's what he said so i applied for this and uh, well uh, i decided well canada montreal not too bad and um, i asked my girlfriend and uh, former girlfriend i have to say she's now my wife for many years and will, she, will you go with me to Canada and uh, spend two years there? And she agreed and she was quite happy to do that. And so we went to uh, Montreal to a lab at the uh, Clinical Research Institute, Institut de Recherche Clinique. So uh, I joined a group there, uh, which was concerned with the role of dopamine sympathetic nervous system in cardiovascular research just by chance. I mean, I did immunology and I wasn't prepared to go into cardiovascular. But before that, I negotiated a position in nephrology at Heidelberg University Hospital, and that was already fixed. And then I was in Canada, and after a couple of months, a previous fellow, Detlef Ganten, who then became my mentor, actually, um, he uh, said, well, you know, I have a position open in the Department of Pharmacology in Heidelberg, Heidelberg University. Why don't, why don't you come to me and do theoretical research there? And I keep the position open until you come. So I wrote a long letter to the chief of nephrology in Heidelberg and said, well, I'm so sad, but I don't come to you. I don't join you. 
I will stay uh, in theoretical basic research. So I went back to Heidelberg and then I started my career as a second postdoc um, career in Heidelberg at the university. And of course, this group was very strong in hypertension research. The whole institute at the time, under the leadership of Franz Gross, who was an excellent researcher in development of uh, cardiovascular drugs, formerly at the Ciba Geige, which is now Novartis. And then he went to academia again, which is uh, quite rare, and uh, was an excellent leader there at the institute. And most of the professors and groups worked uh, at one point uh, in hypertension, be it renin-angiotensin system, most of us, but also aldosterone and other issues. So that's how I went into hypertension research. And that was in, let's say, 1978 or so. And uh, I haven't left this uh, career of hypertension. You may say I'm a bit uh, single-minded or stubborn. <laughs> I should have done other things. But I think in hypertension research, there is so much to do and still to do. We know so little about how things develop in hypertension, how the interplay between the different systems exists and how uh, on a cellular and on a systemic, on a regular basis, things are intertwined. And I think this is still a, a work for generations to find out about this disease. And by the way, Hypertension is, of course, a disease uh, which affects many people. More than 1.3 billion people in the world have hypertension and probably even more. So, uh, yeah, I think to answer your first question, that's, that's uh, my short story. Yeah, no, wonderful. And uh, I couldn't agree more that there is still so much more to be discovered, especially how different organs and cells in our body interact with each other to control blood pressure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you have made some uh, very important contributions to the International Society of Hypertension, uh, particularly uh, recently leading uh, the uh, new guidelines that uh, went live last year that was uh, an incredible amount of work. I was wondering if you could comment how sitting in uh, research committees or societal committees has advanced your career progression. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, when I saw this question uh, that you uh, gave me um, in advance, I thought, well, this is very difficult to answer because normally you would say you shouldn't go into all these committees and gremia until you have something to say. And something to say means that you have some experience, some knowledge, also uh, you have a good record of, let's say, publications. And if, if this is the case and you are a bit older, then, I mean, you may sit uh, more and more in committees. But I hesitate to recommend this to young researchers at the beginning of their career. I think they should concentrate much more on what they have to do in the lab or wherever they work, produce good papers internationally accepted. And then, you know, piece by piece, they can build up on this. And then at one point, they will be asked uh, into committees uh, by circumstances or by their mentors. And uh, this comes basically by itself, along with the career, but not so much in the beginning. Yeah. But from your personal experience, uh, when you were much more uh, uh, junior in your career, mm -hmm. did sitting in these committees help you to develop your own career, get promoted to full professor uh, and so on? No, no, not sitting in committees. You don't get promoted to professor if you sit in committees all the time and waste your time there. You have to work. And working does not mean always sitting in committees and talking. Working is producing good research. And with, if you produce good research and you are also developing as a good teacher, maybe, uh, then, you know, you will become a professor and you will proceed in your career. And it's not the other way around. Yeah. And Thomas, like, I find like very interesting and I, I agree with you, like, you know, science should be the one that's driving your promotions and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, just like to uh, to ask like a, co a complementary question here. So, what do you think about like universities now? There are a few universities that 
ask like uh, young researchers and uh, like for uh, for us to do so many things in order to get a promotion, right? So like uh, I know like in Brazil here in the UK, like they ask a lot about it's not only the science; they also put like a lot of weight on the STEAM, the international recognition, and all those things. And when you talk to a career advisor, they give examples like, oh, we need to go into uh, committees, we need to organize meetings, we need to participate in editorial boards. Um, and sometimes I feel like a little bit like what you're saying is like, but this is detracting us from publishing, from, you know, like it's last time that we have at the bench. So what do you think about universities pushing ECRs to do so much in addition to their science? Yeah, that is what I what I already already try to say. Um, if in the beginning of your career, let's say between 25 and 35 or 40 years, um, and I can say that because I'm 70 now. <laughs> I mean, for, for me, somebody who's 40 is a young person. And um, in this period of the career, you should really concentrate on producing good research, good results and publish. It's not publish or perish, but you should publish good papers. In Maastricht, for instance, um, we had, uh, when a PhD student would come to the defense of the PhD, a doctorate, then this person would have to produce a booklet with uh, three publications first authored in international journals, then maybe uh, a review uh, on this research and uh, a paper on which, a good paper on which he is a co-author or she. So that, that actually means that in these four years or so of doctorate, you really have to work at the bench. And there isn't much time to go in all these gremia, all these committees and uh, sit there and listen to other people and talk to them. And I'm, I'm very hesitant. I doubt that uh, what, what the advisors tell you that you have to go into all these gremia. It is not true. You have to produce good research. And then, you know, people will get alerted and say, well, this is a person who has produced enormously uh, good research in these 10 years or so. Um, and then you will be promoted. It's not the other way around. And if, if it's the other way around, then we just lose quality in research. And it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, you go to Gremia, you will be professor, but at the end, you haven't produced anything. You are professor and you may have made a career and that may be quite good at the university, you are safe. And when you look back, what have I really produced? What have I contributed to the progress of science? And I think this question then is a very hard one if you gain your professorship by uh, committees. I mean, it has to do with mentoring. Um, when I was back in Heidelberg, then uh, my boss in the lab was Detlef Ganten, who is a well-known uh, hypertension researcher. And Detlef actually was leading in the field of extra uh, humoral renin angiotensin system. So in the brain, for instance. And this was uh, quite controversial at the time, but it was something which was uh, actually, it was, it was discussed about, it raised a lot of discussion. And so when you would go to, let's say a Gordon Research Conference on angiotensin in California, he would just take us, me and maybe one or two others with him. And then, you know, we would, could really get a touch of this international climate and how it works in the United States and what you have to produce to be accepted there. And that you have to, for instance, to, to send your papers to CERC research and not just to the, uh, I don't know what, Glasgow Medical uh, Research Company. And this, this actually educated us in how we have to work in an international high quality and uh, yeah, challenging uh, surrounding. That's much better than uh, you say, well, uh, invited lecture. You, invited lectures come if people get uh, kind of interested in, into you and your work. And of course, a mentor can help you because he can actually push you and get you involved in these, in these areas. 
So I'm not sure that it may depend only on invited lectures. In my mind, maybe I'm antique in this, but I think you have to publish good papers. And I mean, if you, if you are lucky to have one or two nature papers, that's more than, and first authored, of course, and not author number 25. Um, yeah, that's much more than just having an invited lecture here or there. And invited lecture basically means uh, that you have to talk about something that you know and where you are experienced and worth of being invited. And an invited lecture is more than just to talk uh, seven minutes at a Congress. It means they invite you because they trust in you and they think that you have something to say, but you have not something to say if you are not experienced in your research and if you have not produced some seminal work uh, in your field. Yeah, no, totally agree. I, I like, it goes with sometimes how I feel. Like I feel like sometimes people are being asked too much, too soon, like, like, yeah, like pushed become like this superstars too soon when we need to uh, build a concrete a concrete base uh, for our areas totally agree with you and it's good that you mentioned uh, the role of the mentor and now let's switch a little bit to the mentoring part of the interview so if you need to define your mentorship experience in one word and that's one of my favorite questions um, what would be the word that you uh, you would use one word yeah uh, i would i would say uh confidence confidence and then i have to explain it uh means that i'm confident that the mentee is achieving this goal or that goal and finally making a career and if you can, uh, if you have this confidence as a mentor, uh, which is also related to trust, um, then you know you you mentor in a different way. You you help this person uh, to become what he or she wants to become in terms of a career. But you have to have as a mentor, you have to have the confidence that this works, confident and trust in this person. Oh, beautiful. And Thomas, why do you think mentoring is important? Oh, yeah, I think it's very important. Because in the beginning, you don't really know where you are. Uh, you come into a lab, or you come into a uh, working environment that is uh, strange to you. You haven't seen that before. Uh, you have uh, may have been a good student at the university, but it's just a, a recipient. And now you have to, they ask you to produce. I remember when I came back to Heidelberg, I already of course had some papers in the American Journal of Physiology, for instance. Uh, so I was not really unexperienced after two years of uh, postdoc in Montreal. But you know, my boss, Detlef Ganten, asked me uh, to write a paper on uh, the brain renin angiotensin system. I was totally unexperienced in brain renin angiotensin system. So he gave me a paper that he wrote uh, a couple of months before and said, you know, you can take this as a basis and then work on it. And I was, I was stupid enough to uh, actually translate this I, either from English into German or German English, I can't remember, but then I gave it to him, this draft. And he said, well, mm -hmm, fine, but where are your own thoughts? Uh, you have just translated my thoughts. Where are your own thoughts? I said, well, how can I know? I don't know this system well. And I said, well, okay, then get your knowledge there and uh, do something about it. And then come back with something what you think should be done about this system. I think that was good mentoring in the beginning. And uh, so I went back and did that. And uh, I did the same with my students and uh, doctorants. Um, then after this, uh, when time came for that. And Thomas, when in your career was was that moment that you realized you need a mentor was before? Like when in your career did you realize, oh yeah, I need someone to help me? Well, it's very difficult to say because you know this comes along with your career. There are, there are phases in your career where you say, well, now I really need some help. For instance, um, when I uh, 
arrived at the stage where I wanted to become an independent professor. In Germany, uh, you actually have then to travel around. Uh, you get into kind of a traveling circus where certain candidates, which are ripe for this, you always meet the same and they're all in the same position and they want to get this or that professorship. And then you have mentors, of course, here and there who help you, who pick up the phone and phone the committee of that university and say, well, this is an excellent candidate and whatever. And um, actually Detlef didn't do that. Um, he just left it to me. Um, and at points I was really disappointed and said, well, you know, this is now a point in my career where I would need this kind of backing of somebody who would, you know, play the music in my back and uh, play it for me. Um, he didn't do that. Uh, in the end, uh, well, in the end, I was quite glad that I achieved professorships at various universities by myself. And so it always has two sides. Sometimes uh, mentoring is very important and helpful and wanted. And sometimes looking back, you say, well, it's good that I achieved these things, not only through mentoring or being, being mentored, so to speak. I don't know whether I answer your question, but uh, I can only tell you from my own experience. That's good. And Thomas, what is your own mentoring style? And can you tell us any examples of how you have helped your own mentees? Yeah, I think what, what mentoring style um, uh, depends on certain things. You, I mean, you have to, to respect the person in front of you, your mentee. That's the first thing. Respect this person. Um, have an open ear to what this person has in terms of problems. Encourage and uh, support in terms of, you know, let this person do something for you, let it fly, so to speak. I give you one example, which came to mind when I prepared a little bit for this talk. Um, that was my uh, student, uh, Manfred König. He was a student, medical student and wanted to do his thesis in medicine. And so he came to the lab and his job was to inject um, fragments of substance P, which is a, peptide uh, involved in pain and other things, uh, fragments into the lateral brain ventricle of rats to see whether cardiovascular responses would come from this or that fragment or from the whole substance. So he started to do that. And he did it quite well. He was uh, skillful with uh, the animals and whatever, no, no, nothing to uh, blame him, but he didn't have any proper results. Nothing came out of that. And this went on for several months. And at one point, uh, he was really disgusted. He was disappointed. He was really down and frustrated. So I, I noticed that. And I, I mean, I had noticed him with his job before and seen how he was really taking, making an effort, but nothing came out. Then I said, okay, Manfred, let's, let's just drop uh, the, the syringe and drop uh, the instruments for a while, come home to me and we have uh, a couple of whiskeys and then discuss the matter. And uh, you will see at one point you will survive and things will get better. So we did that. And funny enough, from this point on, he had results and could then uh, have a paper and uh, get his doctorate. I mean, this is an anecdote, of course, but it means that at one point you have to find, you have to feel, to sense uh, what your young coworker is, you know, being frustrated, disappointed or what. And that is the point where you have to step in. I'll give you another example. One of my best um, uh, students was uh, Monika Stoll, a lady who had studied biology and already made something out of it before she came for her doctorate to me. And um, she is now actually a pro-rector of the Münster University in Germany. So she really made a career and it's also a professorship in Maastricht in genetics. 
Um, yeah, and she uh, started on a project uh, which we both thought uh, is interesting on the uh, 82 receptor, my, my working horse for so many years, the 82 angiotensin 82 receptor. And um, she had a feeling that uh, this receptor was doing something else uh, apart from the 81 receptor, which is the classical angiotensin receptor, which, which, which would do, of course, proliferation and other things. And so we tried to stimulate the 82 receptor uh, by indirect means. At this point, we didn't have a proper specific agonist. Well, and what came out was indeed, uh, this was uh, antagonizing the proliferative action was anti-proliferative. But you know, nobody believed that. Um, we talked about this at conferences and she talked about that and she was very motivated, but nobody believed it. And then I said, okay, the only things what we can do now, we do experiments and we do it as often as we can. And I forced her to do 30 experiments, always the same with the cells, uh, bringing them to anti-proliferation or stop of proliferation via the 82 receptor. In 70 and 27 of these uh, experiments, the result was clear anti-proliferative. In three of these 30, it was the other way around. So what can you do then? Do you take it upon you uh, to publish this? Or say, well, no, it was not 100% in all experiments. Knowing that experiments and experimental conditions can vary a lot between summer and winter and hot and cold and I don't know what laboratory conditions. So in the end, I decided for her and said, now we are going ahead. I take it on me that we publish. And so we uh, sent this to a, a very, a very uh, nice international journal and uh, we got it published there. And that was actually the breakthrough together with the lab of Victor Zhao in uh, Stanford at the time. Um, that the 82 receptor got something which was not enigmatic anymore, but was clear that this was an antagonizer of the 81 receptor. So, um, yeah, you need, you need points of no return, so to speak, when you mentor people, young people. And at these points, you have to encourage them uh, to be resilient, uh, overcome the frustration and uh, quite often this comes then to a good end. So Tom is now changing from like mentor to the mentee. Uh, so I'm guessing like for your uh, student or mentee at that time, like the 30 experiments must have like be a little fr like the frustrations and everything. So now when you think about uh, mentee's uh, behavior or um, set of mind, what kind of advice would you give to them? Like what, how the mentees should, not behave, but like what they need to have in yeah, order yeah. to take advantage of this relationship with women. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I, I think they should be intelligent. Let's say that, let's assume that all of them are intelligent people. That's the first thing. The second thing, they have to be motivated. Uh, motivation is something that, yeah, it really comes from yourself. Uh, my friend, uh, Fred Luft, you may know him also in the hypertension field. Um, we worked together in the 80s. He, he came to my lab for two years. And so we became good friends there. And, you know, when somebody was not motivated of these young people, he said, this person is not driven. <laughs> and there was actually um, kind of an uh, adver advertisement by the Japanese company Datsun, for their cars. And they said, this is driven, you know, and he just took that uh, and said, well, you know, this person is not driven. So motivation has to come from the person. It must come from the inner heart of, of, uh, of such a person. But of course you can encourage that, you can foster uh, motivation uh, by helping these people, talking to them, listening to them. Um, the second point is then these persons have to be resilient and they have to overcome the frustrations that we have just talked about. Uh, frustration in science is the rule. It's not the exception. 
because our hypotheses are always men or women made, so to speak. And quite often we have to falsify them. That's after Popper actually what we have to do in science, falsify uh, hypotheses as long as we can. And if we have done that, we have to come to new ones. But hypotheses are always built on what we think uh, they are. I mean, after a couple of results, we think these results give us new questions. And from these questions comes a hypothesis. And then we try to verify or falsify this, this uh, hypothesis. And quite often, our, our hypotheses are stupid. Uh, they just don't go along with nature or with the conditions or whatever. So frustration. Resilient to frustration. That's very important. I would also say a good sense of humor. Because when you work in a group day, day after day, uh, you, I mean, if you are always going for yourself with a sad face, everybody else around you will also have a sad face and <laughs> that is not good for the climate. So do something for the climate and finally, of course, be a good team worker. There's always a balance between team working and working for yourself. And this balance has to be kept, it's not easy. Um, I'm not on the side of these people who say everybody has to be only a good team worker and then everything works. No, you have to be good by yourself. And once you're good by yourself, then you have to be open to the team. You have to be helped by others, but you also have to offer your help to the others in the group or in the team. But that actually has to come from you and not from the team. Don't wait for others to help you. Help yourself and then you can help others. It's like in the plane. When they say in the unlikely event of a loss of cabin pressure, these masks come uh, from, the, from the top and please put them around your, your head, head and then help your children, not the other way around. Yeah, that's, that's what I think about. <laughs> yeah, I like the plane, yeah, comparison. Yeah. And uh, in terms of identifying in a good training environment, do you have any advice of how people that are interested in doing a PhD, after they finish the PhD, that they're looking for a postdoc, how they find a good lab? Yeah, I think there are two things uh, in one question. How to find a good lab is uh, obviously uh, when you are, let's say you have done your PhD and you're now looking for a postdoc at this point of your career. Uh, during your PhD work, you usually have seen the major labs, at least in the literature, the major groups. Uh, in maybe some of them you have met personally or the, you have met the boss of this group personally. And you think, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting what they're doing. And they're published extremely well. They're in Boston or they're whatever. And I want to go there and, and join them because then I will become famous. Okay, fine. Um, now the second part of your question is um, how should the atmosphere be there in this group? And there are different styles. Um, there are bosses or chiefs of, uh, of a lab, of a group who are very jovial, who um, talk to everybody, who are nice to everybody. And in many cases, this works. It's encouraging that nobody is demotivated and so on. On the other hand, there are labs, uh, especially in the big groups in the United States, which are very productive, but the style is different. And I remember one of my good friends, uh, Victor Zhao, uh, who is now one of the advisors of the American president, as you know, um, he, when, when he was in the lab, he, and they had lab uh, meetings once a week or so, you know, he asked one after the other of the youngsters, uh, what have you done for me lately? And you know, what's up, what's new, what you got? The three questions, what's up, what's new, what you got? And many of these were fearing these, these meetings because it was relatively hard to survive there. And he was not pleasant to everybody. But this stimulated people to become even better and to produce better and whatever. So again, a balance, I think, is important. You have to um, be an excellent researcher as a group leader. And this example has to spread uh, and has to be accepted by the group and by the young people especially. 
they have to try to be as good as you are and uh, have the same success, of course, in their, in their careers. That is the first thing. So you give a good example. Um, you also uh, have to be an authority. You have to know what's going around. You have to know all details or many details at least. And knowing this, you also as a boss have to delegate things to the younger ones so that they learn how to work independently. For instance, delegating uh, paper reviews and then sitting together with them and see what they have found out, what kind of criticism they had, what kind of comments they had, and then discuss it with them and then uh, submit. This kind of mentorship in, in the group is very important. So um, yeah, it's again, both sides. A group should working nicely together, teamwork should be important, but also you have to foster and encourage individual excellence. And this is uh, what a group leader has to do. And, and Thomas, um, so you're talking about like, you know, you mentioned a little bit of like the meeting, like uh, well, may get in, maybe like getting intimidated with the situation. And I think like uh, young uh, researchers or like the people that listen to our podcast, they sometimes find themselves in, in situations either to talk to someone or in a meeting or negotiations for positions or something like that. So what's your advice for people to overcome feeling? I'm not a psychologist, basically. <laughs> this is, this is, uh, I, I was pondering about this question and I thought, well, what would be my advice? Uh, very difficult because it, it uh, depends so much on the character on both sides. If you have somebody who tries to intimidate you, but does it in a kind of a positive way to just scratch out of you what you have to say and uh, your opinion about something. And he does that in a, or she, in, a, in an aggressive manner, but you feel that, that this is the, the, the nucleus, so to speak, is positive. Then it's much easier. Then you can stand up and say, well, I have found this and this, and this is my opinion and you know, blah, blah. This is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is if you have somebody who is just weird and uh, who is aggressive and uh, intimidating everybody, uh, but not uh, to get the best out of this person, but just to produce his superiority or her superiority or just power, power play, um, then it becomes very difficult. What, what should I advise then and say, well, could you also stand up and say uh, this and this and this? Or should you just let this person intimidate you and say, well, it doesn't touch me, I do my work. I have seen both situations in my career and I always tried uh, to be not intimidating. Um, even if the situation around you is a very difficult one and you have your own problems as a leader and whatever, try to be not. But if there is somebody intimidating, of course you can try to talk to others there may be in uh, extreme situations also somebody officially uh, being uh, deployed to uh, handle these problems. Some kind of a mediatorship sometimes is necessary. In the end, if a person intimidating you as a young, young researcher isn't stopping that and you feel that this doesn't bring out the positive um, vibes in you and um, then you have to change the group and do something else i think uh, this is extreme but sometimes this happens also yeah i i'm sorry that i cannot really answer this with yes or no <laughs> this is so okay. complicated it's so complicated it yeah no i agree i agree it's complicated yeah um i tend to find a lot of people intimidating including you i hope you don't mind me saying that <laughs> <laughs> you find me intimidating yeah <laughs> no, I, I try to be a softy. <laughs> no, but Fran, one thing you need to learn from Thomas is that, like, he is the one that trying to get the best of you. Like, he instigates you to get, you know, to get that sparkle going. And then you see, like, the more you you get to know Thomas, the the better it gets. I mean, you have to challenge people. You have to challenge them. 
you know they, they even if they get uh, i mean if they get very angry about uh, the aggressive professor <laughs> then they may sit back in their room and say okay maybe he's right or she's right at this point and maybe i should i should do it differently or be better here and there or be more motivated it depends very much on the interrelationship between people and also on the characters of them. So um, it really depends on the situation. Well, I absolutely agree that we need to be challenged to be able to mm. grow. Yeah. And, um, and Thomas, now moving into diversity and inclusion, and that's a, a big topic at the moment, and I think it's a big topic for the ISH. Um, what do you think is the biggest issue and the challenge that we have at the moment around diversity and inclusion? And how do you think we can change it? And uh, so I'm very glad that in the ISH, we have this women in hypertension group. I'm glad about that. Actually, I'm also very glad about that is led by Musha Steckelings, uh, with whom I worked for so many years. And she also made a very good career then, became independent and is now really some of the fruits of collaboration for a long time. And I'm very proud of that. And I think she is, uh, she is doing a good job. Um, women, uh, actually, um, it's very difficult to say that they are still hampered or hindered to do their, to go for their career because in many, institutions, at least in Germany and Holland, where I have uh, Netherlands, where I have experienced it, I think it's also the same in Great Britain uh, or the UK, uh, that um, women formally do not have minor chances. Uh, but it depends on, again, um, their way of doing things. It depends also on how they can speak up, how they can make themselves uh, known to others. And it's also um, quite often their, their character or their attitude that they are more reluctant than young men to produce themselves and tell uh, the surroundings what they can do and how good they are and so on. They're more reluctant to do that. And they shouldn't be. They, they should stand up for themselves. They should be proud of what they have done. And um, then I think, there is, uh, at least in my experience, um, equal kind of support from the superiors. At least I can say from my groups that I had in different universities, I had the same number of female uh, uh, doctorates uh, than men and uh, male ones. And also when it comes more uh, to professorships, uh, to this part of the career, Again, the same, even I think one more female than men. So I think it depends also, it doesn't depend on the circumstances alone. It depends also very much on these female young researchers that they do something for themselves. And I think a group like women in hypertension is good for that because there they can learn much more how to be proud of themselves, how to uh, stand in the first and not in the second or third row and um, you know, tell the world that they are there and they're doing good research. And I mean, if you look into biomedical research now, there are many, many female researchers with excellent results and also excellent positions. It's not what it was 20, 30 years ago. For instance, when you in Germany, when uh, a new professorship is open, normally uh, what the uh, committee is doing, uh, they invite, let's say, six people. If there is uh, to, to talk and uh, to get into the inner circle of the uh, candidates. Now, um, if there is a lady within these six, there is a rule now, there is legislation that this lady has to be invited. Now then usually after this inviting six or eight people, they make a list of three, first, second, third choice. If there is a lady among those invited, there is a legal, there is a rule that they have to be on this list, that this lady has to be on the list, yeah? So, uh, and if she is on the list and on number three, 
then quite often a female guided government section, let's say the Ministry of whatever education or science, will tell the university, well, this lady is on three, put, she has to be put on one because she's a lady. So uh, legislation, at least in Germany, is now doing a lot uh, to avoid any discrimination against females. And many of them have a chance. The other side of the coin is that many of my, several of my young female co-workers um, doing their doctorates or postdocs didn't want to stay in research. They did then something else. For instance, one was very good, very intelligent, had an excellent uh, uh, thesis. And I made everything possible with Reutel Huber in Montreal and others that she get, would get a postdoc there. Everything was settled. And then she came and said, no, I'm going to a consulting company. That's gone. And she's lost to science. And I have seen many of them, especially females, who are lost to science because at one point they decided to do something else. Now you can say they were not stupid. They, they knew what to expect and, uh, in, with respect to frustration in a scientific career. So they evaded it and went to another field to avoid these frustrations and avoid these shortcomings and whatever. But I would wish that they, out of themselves, have the motivation and the stubbornness to stay, not only for defense or for a PhD, but stay on. And then, you know, um, they have, in these days, if we are not in some remote areas of the world, let's say Afghanistan, um, they have the same chances. Yeah, that's incredible to hear that there are new opportunities now and even legislation in place to protect um, to protect uh, women uh, to have careers in science. In Australia, I think we're doing a lot, but it's, we're still not there. And being a um, junior female, that in a lot of times I have been the only woman in the committee or sometimes the most junior person in the committee and having to be the one to engage and start very tough conversations, I'll tell you that uh, it's it's hard. It's it's incredibly hard. And what from my perspective that has helped me is to have all the people in there, like when, for example, if we're having a committee meeting and I'm the one to say something that is difficult, it's difficult for me, it's difficult for everybody, but have someone else to amplify that. So someone else, usually someone like a uh, more senior like yourself to amplify what I said and to say, yeah, I think that's a really important point. I really agree with that. That's usually incredibly helpful because sometimes there is still some degree of unconscious bias that we know that it's going to be there, but just having someone else to support, especially if it's coming from uh, someone more senior and male, it really helps. Yeah, I think you are right. Um, and, you know, if, if you sit in a committee um, and let's say you are sitting in a committee and I'm sitting in the same and you make a comment and I see, well, hmm, interesting. You know, this lady has thought about what she's saying and it's, it's right. Then I, I'm always uh, forced, uh, almost forced to, to support this. Uh, it depends not only that this is a female but uh, that what she said or what she commented makes sense. And so I think both has to come together. I agree that it's sometimes for female contributors more difficult to open their mouth, to speak loudly, to speak up with a loud voice <laughs> because otherwise they're not heard. Um, and, but then if it's good, uh, I think not only me, but many others uh, in my age or whatever would support that. And there are like also like cultural uh, differences as well, right? So in some cultures, like women are taught to uh, not speak up because that's not mm -hmm. what a woman should do. And, and and it makes like even like more complicated, but it's, it's good to see that like in many countries or in many uh, systems, things are changing to a more progressive uh, manner, let's say. Mm -hmm. But uh, Thomas, now considering um, COVID-19 and the pandemic, as, as you're aware, uh, the pandemic sort of like interrupt 
the progress, the career progress of many young researchers yeah. with lab closures, uh, right? And just like, you're not being able to do your research, like stopping your uh, grant applications and like, you know, really got in a way of us moving forward. Mm -hmm. So what would be your advice or ideas that we could do in order to catch up with the time that was lost? and make sure that our careers doesn't suffer mm -hmm. even further from the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think we, we can do not very much against the pandemic. I mean, it's there and we have to live with it and we have to cope with it, all of us, not only the young researchers. Um, but uh, concerning what you have said about their difficulties, uh, I think the first thing should be a high flexibility uh, in the administration. That means if you have planned your PhD uh, uh, career for let's say four years, sometimes it's only three years, which is very short for a PhD, um, and you now run into COVID and for one year you are unable to do your experiments, then there should be absolutely no question that you can extend this until you, know, you get your results and uh, the pandemic is over. And uh, even if this is then four and a half years instead of three uh, and so on. So flexibility in all those offices which have to do with uh, the local legislation and administration. And I think that's the best they can do. And then you can catch up with what you have lost without that anybody is guilty about that. You have just lost the time. It's the same thing with our school children. Uh, one of my grandchildren is now uh, in the fourth, is now coming into the fourth year. In her career of the first four years at school, one and a half year was not at school. And <laughs> what can we do about that? We, we can help afterwards. And we can say, well, it's well accepted that, that you have lost some time, lost some time of your childhood in school. And this is very important. And you know, now after this, we help you to catch up. And the same, I think, is true for young researchers that they you give them flexibility and give them the time to catch up. It doesn't really matter when you're 70 years old, it doesn't matter whether you have lost a year when you were 35 or when you are 27. But at the time when you are 27, you think it's a great, great loss. You know, so <laughs> there should be a possibility afterwards to catch up and everybody should help there. Administrators, professors, institutions. Of course, team leaders as well. You know. No, I agree with that. Thank you. I think that was all the questions we had for you today. Uh, thank you so much, Thomas, for um, agreeing to do this podcast with us. We really appreciate and appreciate your time and your contribution. Yeah. I know just before we wrap up, so it's like, uh, uh, Thomas, if you don't mind, like, because we, we know yeah. that like you're part, like you created, because the podcast is about like mentorship and everything. And you created like a very good program of a PhD where there is like lots of components of mentor mentorship and uh, career uh, development. Do you mind, like, just to close the, the interview, do you mind telling us a little bit more, like, how did you come up with the idea and how, like, tell us the story about MindShift. MindShift, yes. You know, I'm, I was uh, very active in uh, the ECCR uh, and also in the European Society of Hypertension for years. And um, it always struck me that... Uh, in Europe, at least, and also in the Western world and Japan, we are losing uh, positions in hypertension and hypertension research. Hypertension is not easy in this respect because it's interdisciplinary and it's between the organs. And in me medicine is organized that uh, it goes for the organs. That means the cardiac uh, cardiologist is the doctor for the heart, the nephrologist for the kidney and the neurologist for the brain, just to mention the three of them. And the endocrinologist, of course, cares about other things in hypertension, diabetes. So um, hypertension is always in between. And there was a tendency over the last 20 years or so 
um, to abandon hypertension as chair of the university and so on. And I, I have witnessed that for years now, also together with the withdrawal of the pharmaceutical industry from hypertension, we all know that. Um, and I thought, well, we have to do something against that. And how can we? And so I found some uh, people who also had same thoughts about this. And this was especially um, Gianpaolo Rossi in Padua and uh, Brian Harvey in Dublin. They had already a network on aldosterone and um, they were looking for something which would extend this into hypertension and related diseases. Um, and then they asked me at one point uh, whether I would join them with hypertension and whether I, for more practical reasons, would take over in Maastricht um, and uh, help to create uh, this, this group. And, you know, I was really chilled by this um, and uh, challenge. And uh, I thought, that's it. You know, let's do hypertension as a European network. And finally, a hypertension school, a European hypertension school, like we have these schools in Maastricht for cardiovascular and other diseases. So we sat together several times and then formulated what we wanted to have. And uh, I must say, I was very, very happy um, to have somebody on my side, which is uh, Kuhn Resing in Maastricht at the university there, who helped me a lot. And also my former secretary, Tara de Costa, who's much more than a secretary, she's really an intelligent, intelligent strategic worker. And so the three of us actually uh, went together and tried to open up this mind shift uh, network. The next hurdle was of course the European Commission because in Horizon 2020, they had abandoned hypertension and most cardiovascular diseases at all because they thought this is not up to date anymore and they rather went into nanotechnology and all this kind of more modern stuff they thought. So hypertension, a hypertension group, a, a program would really swim against the stream and um, that's what we dared to do. And um, we needed three, three rounds to get uh, funded. Um, and that was quite a hard time because you know you have to improve all the time. And again, Kuhn Resing was very, very helpful in doing that. Without him, um, the whole thing wouldn't have happened. Yeah, and now we are there and um, we do something for hypertension. We associate MindShip as much as possible with the ECCR, with the European Council for Cardiovascular Research, so that we have something um, for the outside people as well. We have meetings, we have a society which is supporting MindShift and the other way around. And you, know, you can ask me after three or four years whether it was successful or not. Um, but we hope very much that we can recruit some young people, um, males and females, <laughs> Um, I think at the, at the present time, there are even more females um, to go into this field because it's so important. And as we mentioned in the beginning, there are so many things not known and have to be unveiled. Um, yeah, that's, that's you always, I mean, again, this is a good example. You have to fight against the odds. Hypertension research was something not very popular and still isn't. People go into other fields, they go into cancer, immunology, whatever, because that's so important right now. Of course it is. But hypertension also affects many people and the sequelae of hypertension are very bad. And I don't want to have all these people having a stroke with 39 years. So yeah, that's that's my credo in terms yeah. of hypertension. <laughs> no, thank you. That, that sounds amazing. And I'll, I'll definitely be checking out Mind, mind shift uh, to say whether it's possible to perhaps uh, uh, talk to you about implementing it in Australia as well. I think that's a, a very important issue that we have here as well, that is so difficult to get funding and to get people interested to maintain a career in hypertension. So thank you. That's wonderful. And uh, thank you again uh, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Uh, it has been a, an honor and uh, I enjoy talking to you. I hope you're not intimidated now. <laughs> a little bit less. <laughs> a little bit less. What can I do? <laughs> All right. Thanks.
Thank you so much, Thomas. It was, it was great. It was, it was great to, to talk to you and hear your, your thoughts. Okay. I think it, it will pleasure a lot of people. Yeah, it was a pleasure to work with you. <laughs>